sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for what you're doing here. I am so glad, Lord, that you allow me to help to feed your sheep in this house, the word of God. And we want to go humbly before you in reverence to your holy word. Lord, we ask you to fill our minds and our hearts, our understanding, and not only fill them, but make enlarge them, Lord, that we can hold more and with the ability to hold more, to hunger more for thy word, I pray in the name of Jesus. And bless all who have come tonight. And a double blessing for those who stay for prayer, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Genesis part 18 and Genesis chapter 38. If you remember, we, uh, we ended the first part of the saga of Joseph last week. Uh, and the betrayal of him by his brothers. And Joseph is now headed down to Egypt to be sold as a slave. And uh, now we come to Genesis chapter 38. And sometimes when reading the Bible, we come to stories and events which seem to be out of place. Uh, Genesis chapter 38 is one of those chapters. We began the wonderful tale of Joseph, one of the favorite stories found in Scripture, and right in the middle of this story that we're enjoying and we want to get to the end of, there's an intermission of sorts. And it is a rather sordid tale. Here we have Judah, who seems quite far removed from the ways of his great-grandfather Abraham and his grandfather Isaac. And Judah takes a wife of the Canaanites, which is forbidden. Uh, he is not being a, a, a man after God's heart at all. And Judah has three sons. The first one was named Er, and uh, the second was Onan, and the third son was Shelah. And Judah took a wife for Er, and her name was Tamar. And Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Now, we do not know exactly what Er did, uh, but I think he committed an error. <laughs> and he paid for the error of his ways. But remember that the story of the Bible is largely about the genealogy that God would use to bring the promised seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, into the world. In fact, it's what the entire nation of Israel is about. Uh, God was certainly displeased with Judah having children with a pagan woman because the Lord would be born through the line of Judah. And the Lord slew Er. Somebody texted me today 
and uh, said, why did the Lord, you know, slay him? And, you know, kind of wanted an answer that made sense. Well, here's the bottom line. The Lord can do whatever he wants. He is omniscient. And uh, the meaning of omniscient is he can do whatever, whenever, however he wants. And he doesn't ask anyone's permission. So the Lord was not happy with this man, Er, and he slew him. And Tamar was left a childless widow. Now, there was a custom in that society called the Leverite marriage. It has nothing to do with the Levites. Uh, uh, Lever is, um, the Levites, Lever is Latin, and it means the brother of a husband. So it's the Leverite marriage. If you're writing it, it's like Levi, L-E-V-I, right, R-I-T-E, like ritual. And uh, basically a woman who was a widow and she had no child, she had a right to have a child in the genealogy of her dead husband's family. And this was done largely to protect her and give her status. Uh, the, the males were, were the heirs of the land. And a widow uh, without child, children from her husband could be left completely destitute. And uh, this was the custom of the land. And in short, if her deceased husband had a brother, the brother was to take her as a wife, and their firstborn son would carry the name and inherit the property of the deceased husband. This would later be codified in the law of Moses. This is in the law of Moses. So if you were a brother and you had an older brother, and he was married, and they had no children. If he were to die, you had a responsibility to take her as your wife, and the children that would be born would actually carry on his name and receive his possession. And we'll get into what I mean by possessions, but basically all of Israel kept their, their family home, their family land in their families for generations. And they could rent them, but they could never forever sell them. Um, at the end of 49 years, the land would return back to, uh, to that particular family. So we'll get into that when we get into uh, Leviticus. Uh, but we're going to begin with verse 9 here. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass... When he went unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it out on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Now, it's interesting, we don't see God doing this anywhere else. But, you see, I think what's happening here, I mean, this is just the opinion of Ricky Taylor, is they're messing with a line and a genealogy that should not be messed with. God has a plan for the genealogy of Judah. And they are messing with that, and they are paying for it. It's something holy in God's sight. But that's just my opinion. But he slew Onan. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up into his sheep shears to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. 
And she put her widow's garments off from her. Now, there's a lot of deception in this family. And we're about to see a little more deception. She is wearing widow garments where everyone knows that she is a widow. She puts the widow's uh, garments off from her. And the Bible says she covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is, by the way, to Timnath. For she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot because she had covered her face. So Tamar felt that she had to take matters into her own hands. In a way, she's kind of doing what Jacob did. She is, Jacob deceived his father Isaac uh, by dressing a certain way, by acting a certain way. And now Tamar, who was not given her rights under the Leverite, uh, the Leverite custom, now feels like she has to use deception to, to obtain that. So she is pretending to be one of the, uh, and in the Hebrew it's Kedeshot. Actually there's two terms uh, that are used here, but one is Kedeshot. And Kedeshot is like Kadosh which is holy. And uh, the reason it says Kedashot, which is, it's a religious prostitute. And basically the lands around that area, the ones who did not worship Yahweh but worshiped other gods, actually used prostitution as a form of religious worship. And that's no doubt what Rahab was uh, in Jericho. But so not only uh, did she... Uh, did he commit a sin of the flesh when he tricked her, uh, tricked, uh, she tricked Judah into having illicit relationships with her? Uh, but it shows his true corruption because it wasn't just a sin of the flesh, but it was a sin of the spirit. She was a religious prostitute and he was to be a worshiper of God and he used this kind of form of worship. Uh, Judah had married a Canaanite woman and now... He would do this thing, and it obviously his heart at this time was very, very far away from God. So we actually see the trouble that God has with this family. How do you bring the Messiah into such a family as this? Uh, Judah was no doubt worshipping other gods. Judah was probably worshipping the gods of his Canaanite wives. And if the Messiah had been brought into the situation, he would have been raised as an idolater. And that could not happen. The, the, uh, the Son of God could not be raised in idolatry. So God needed a nation that worshipped the one true God and the one true God alone. And that is the whole purpose of this. Of this whole genealogy and him having uh, to deal with these people is because he wants to bring our Savior into the world. Verse 16, And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee. Let me come into thee, for he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? Do you know how the you, we know the Bible is true? And I mentioned this last time. Because the heroes of the Bible, and Judah is considered a hero by the Jews. Absolutely. He's the head of the, 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 the founder of the tribe of Judah. They don't gloss over the truth of what they did. They tell the true story of what's happening. And nothing that he does here is right in the eyes of God. Uh, but he does it, and it's recorded. And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And in other words, give me something to prove you're coming back. 
And of course, she's using deceit. And he said, what pledge shall I give thee? And she said, thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it to her and came in unto her and she conceived by him. Now the signet he wore around his neck. It was basically kind of the way that he would sign checks. They would stick it into a little bit of clay and, and it meant that I will pay for this item that I'm purchasing from you. And she, he gave that to her. And, uh, and gave it to her and came in and unto her and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away and laid by her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah basically says, Hey, let her have it, you know, lest I be ashamed. You know, and you can tell he's ashamed. He sent his friend with the pledge. He didn't want to face her. He didn't want to be known as somebody who would do that kind of thing. And three months pass. It's told to Judah, hey, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, is now pregnant. She's with child, and the Bible says, of whoredom. And Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. Now that's a terrible, terrible punishment for such a thing. But it was a punishment that did happen in those times. And um, But think about the heart of this man. Three months before, he had turned into a harlot. And now he is being self-righteous and saying, let her be burned. Even though he is the one who actually uh, committed the whoredom. She was trying to get the Leverite vow or the Leverite, uh, 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 Leverite custom fulfilled. And of course, again, Jacob's family experiences deception and uh, it reminds me uh, Judah saying you know let her be burned it reminds me of when the men of Israel brought a woman taken into adultery the Bible says in the very act that means they knew who the man was mm -hmm. and they brought the woman but they didn't bring the man and they threw the woman down and said Moses said that she should be stoned what do you say well where was the man and uh, we see that kind of hypocrisy going on here. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, they said. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law saying, By the man whose these are, this is 25, am I with child? And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signets and bracelets and, and staff? And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I. That's true. She has, had been righteous. Uh, at least in that time, she had been righteous. She was actually just making him do what he was supposed to be doing. And in a way, she kind of took it by force, didn't she? And in a way, Jacob kind of took the birthright by force, didn't he? By violence. And the Bible says the kingdom of, of God suffereth violence. The violent take it by force. That's actually what it's talking about. It's people who have that tenacity. Who look, I know I'm not worthy of it, but I want it. And they'll be sitting right next to a person who has the right to it, and that person won't even want it. God, may we, may we want what God has for us. Amen. So, she proved by the seal, the bracelet and staff, that he was the guilty guy. And Tamar now wins the right 
to be the mother of Judah's children. It's a deceitful way, but she earned the right. And I mean, she could have been killed. She risked her life to to get this Leverite um, uh, ceremony, this child in the tribe of of, Le- uh, of, of Judah. And so, verse twenty-seven. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying. This came out first. So he's the firstborn, right? And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that behold his brother came out. The secondborn. The secondborn who became first. Kind of sounds like a familiar story, doesn't it? How, and she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Ferez. It says Ferez in the King James Version. In the Hebrew it's Peretz. Uh, we could say it Perez, and uh, that's actually how it is other places in the Bible, Perez. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread up on his hand, and his name was called Zara. We see here another case of the older and the younger. Zara came out first, but Perez became the firstborn. Now, I want to leave off here and turn in the Bible to a seemingly unrelated story of yet another Leverite marriage. I'm going to take you for a little journey. You're just going to have to hold off, and I promise we will land correctly in the right place. Is that okay? So we are going to turn to the time of the judges, a story in the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is a love story. But it's also a prophecy. In fact, it's a prophecy of us, you and me, the church. And uh, the Gentile church. We will not dig deeply into Ruth tonight, but we will do a quick overview. So, in Ruth chapter 1, we learn about Naomi. And how Naomi becomes a widow. Uh, Verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, we were just at Bethlehem, and we were just with Judah. With his wife and two sons, went to reside in the land of Moab. The, names man, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they were actually of the tribe of Judah. Ephrathite is the place where they live, so they're called Ephrathites. And they entered the land of Moab and settled there. Then Naomi's husband, Elimelech, by the way, that means my God is king, Elimelech, and she was left with her two sons who took Moabite women as their wives, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And after they had lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, and Naomi was left without her sons, and without her husband. So when Naomi, uh, who is now in Moab, she hears that God has brought bread to the people of Israel. So the famine is done with. So we're going to go down back to Bethlehem. But I have nothing to give you. I'm poor. I'm destitute. I have no other sons for you. Now she had another son. Uh, uh, he would have had to at least take, I don't know what the law is on that, I'm certainly not a Levite, 
But he would have had to fulfill the Leverite vow. But he, or uh, I keep saying it, the Leverite vow, like the Nazarite vow, the Leverite uh, custom, and and the Leverite marriage, and he would have had to take uh, Ruth or Orpah as a wife. But she didn't have that. So she says, "Go back each to your mother's home, and may the Lord show you loving devotion." And uh, one kisses her and leaves. Orpah leaves, but Ruth says, "Do not urge." me to leave you or turn from following you and she says one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible in 116 of Ruth uh, for wherever you go I will go and wherever you live I will live your people will be my people and your God will be my God where you die I will die and there I will be buried may the Lord punish me and you know you have to understand she's a Moabitess and when she says that word the Lord it's in all capitals here in the King James Version, which means she's saying Jehovah. They would not write the name. Well, they did write the name. They wouldn't read the name. So w when you see in the Hebrew, you'll see Jehovah. They will use Adonai, and we translate that as the Lord. So there's no doubt Ruth knew that the Lord was God. Yahweh was God. She had faith in Him. May the Lord punish me, and ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. So she goes with Naoma, Naomi. They return to Bethlehem. And I'm, like I said, we're not going to get too deep. But I just want you to understand, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. His name was Boaz. And he was a prominent man. He was a man of good character. And Naomi and Ruth are very near to being destitute. They're both childless widows. Uh, Ruth never had a child, and if Naomi had a son, well, she could have married him, but she, they didn't have that, and her child would inherit the ancestral land of her husband or have been able to buy it back if it was uh, rented. Basically, if I had land and it was my ancestral land, I could rent it to you uh, up until 49 years. The 49 years, the 50th year was called the year of Jubilee. So if I had seven years before the year of Jubilee, I could say, hey, let's make a deal, and you can use the land until the year of Jubilee, then it comes back to me. So that land was no doubt rented out. Now, there were provisions under the law where I could make you sell that land to me, and we would come up with an agreement. We've got so many years uh, before the Jubilee, and so the land is worth this much, the, pro uh, the produce is worth this much, and uh, you have to sell it back to me. And in this case, she could not do it because she was a woman. And that w those were the rules. She needed what we call a kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer had to be a relative. And he would be able to purchase that land back. But in order for him to do it, he had to marry Ruth. Okay? Do you understand where we're at now? He had to perform the Leverite marriage. He had to marry you, uh, Ruth in order to uh, be the kinsman redeemer of the land. Now, the law of Moses instituted a provision for the poor and the destitute. It was a type of welfare. Uh, and it was called the law of gleaning. The Israelites were not to harvest the corner of their field. So if you had crops and you went to harvest, you could only harvest the, area, the main area but not the corners. And it, when you did harvest, you only went through one time. You didn't go back and get what was left. Uh, and that was whatever was left could be gleaned by the poor of the land 
or by the stranger so that no one would go hungry. And Ruth is destitute. She goes gleaning in fields. And she's trying to provide food for her and Naomi. And I like how the Bible put it. She happened. She happened. She happened upon the field of Boaz. She did not happen upon the field of Boaz. We all know she didn't happen upon the field of Boaz. God led her to the field of Boaz. And he saw her gleaning in the field and he asked workers about her. And they tell her the whole story of how she treated Naomi and came back with her and how she would not leave her mother-in-law. Now Boaz is very pleased by this. And he tells her to glean only in his fields. And he tells the young men, don't you lay a hand on her? And if she goes out into the center of the field and starts taking from the regular produce, you don't rebuke her, you just let her do it. Oh, and by the way, I want to drop portions, extra portions for her, so that she just happens to find a little more grain. Uh, you know, and, and he does this for her. And he even brings her with him and has lunch with her. And um, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And we also see the spirit of... Of, of Ruth because she saves part of that lunch and brings it back to her mother-in-law. I mean, we're seeing a woman of true grace here. So Ruth, uh, you know, uh, Naomi sees, she, she shows up and she shows up with all of this harvest and Naomi sees everything that she's gleaned and she knows something must be up. There's no way you got all of this by gleaning in the field. And Ruth tells her what Boaz did for her. And Naomi realizes that Boaz is a relative. Now he's not a brother of Ruth's deceased husband, but he can be a kinsman redeemer and he can perform the duties of the Leverite marriage. And we re remember where we learned about the Leverite marriage. We learned about it all the way in Genesis chapter 38, right? That's the first time you see the Leverite marriage in the Bible where uh, where a, a brother's brother would marry his wife and give her children if his brother died. That's the first time we see it, Genesis chapter 38. I want, to, I want you to keep that in your mind because we are going somewhere, I promise you. For those of you who have those little sheets of paper, you might want to take a look at them and it'll give you a hint. Amen. So Ruth approaches Boaz and long story short, he agrees to the marriage and to being a kinsman redeemer. But there's a closer relative who has the right to do it. So Boaz speaks to him. They come to an agreement. And Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. And here the elders at the gate pronounce a blessing on Boaz. Now remember in Genesis chapter 38, a baby was born, a twin by the name. We call him in King James Version, Perez. It's actually Perez or Perez. And they give him this blessing. And may your house become like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now that doesn't seem like a very good blessing when you look at Genesis chapter 38. You think, boy, that was a whole sordid affair. I don't want my house to be anything like Genesis chapter 38 and Perez and Judah and Tamar. And then they say, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now there's a lot more to the story. And when we come to the book of Ruth, we're going to go through it. But Ruth and Boaz get married. And Ruth has a son. The name of that son was Obed. And Obed had a son 
And his son's name was Jesse. And Jesse has a son, and his son's name was David, the king of Israel. Now, why did we take this detour? Why did we leave Genesis 38 and go all the way to the story of Ruth and Boaz? And the answer is, and I want you to look at your little sheet of paper there now that I gave you. Because hidden in the Hebrew text. Now, I am a former atheist. And believe me when I heard about this. I'm not the one who found it. This was found by the scribes who transcribed the Bible onto new scrolls. All they did was they dealt with these letters all day long and they began to see patterns. Because the letters actually have numerical value and what they do is they would write a line, they'd add up the line, they'd check it to the last scroll, and if the numbers matched, they knew they were okay. If the numbers didn't match, they'd throw the whole scroll away and start over again. So they began to see patterns in the Hebrew. Now, I don't believe in all of this hidden code, Bible code kind of stuff, and I don't want you to go off on that. But if it's in the Bible, it's in the Bible. And I went into the original Hebrew, looked it up, and you've got it in your hand right now yourself. You can look it up yourself. And hidden in the Hebrew text of Genesis 38 is an astounding discovery. The scribes begin to notice a pattern in the letters, and it's a truly impossible pattern. The odds of it happening are astronomical in any chapter of the Bible. But in a chapter where Tamar and Judah gave birth to Perez, which began the lineage to King David, and finally the lineage to Jesus Christ, this is impossible. But they discovered that in 49 letter intervals, in Genesis chapter 8, names begin to, to appear. Now, the number 7 in the Bible represents completion. We see it everywhere in the Bible. And 7 times 7 is 49, which is exactly why we have the year of Jubilee on the 50th year. We have seven sevens, 49 years. And here, in 49 letter intervals, the scribes discovered names hidden within the text. And not just any names. Moreover, the names were listed in the order of their births. Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David, written by the hand of Moses before any of these people were even thought of. Here in Genesis 38, Perez is born, or Perez, the son of Judah, through Tamar. I'm going to mess names up this entire time through thy word, by the way, because I read them in Hebrew, and then I, I, I try to see them in English, and I end up coming up with different names. Her name is Tamar, okay, Tamar. And he is the continuing bloodline, which takes us to David. So Perez is the bloodline of David, and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Ruth chapter 4, we get the generations of Perez. And uh, in, here in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. 
Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Now, this is of great interest because Salmon's wife was Rahab the harlot who was saved from the fall of Jericho when she hung a red cord from her window. And that red cord not only represents the blood of Jesus Christ, as Sister Talitha taught us on Mother's Day, amen, but it literally represents the blood line. And Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. And you might find this very interesting. Perez was an illegitimate child. And Deuteronomy 23.2 says, One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. You weren't able to go with the, with the people of Israel around the tabernacle or around the temple when they went before the priest. You couldn't go because you were of illegitimate birth under ten generations. And King David was the tenth generation from Perez. King David who wrote Psalms 122 I was glad when they said unto me let us go into the house of the Lord. Hallelujah. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. Don't you just love the word of God? Hallelujah. God is so good. Amen. God is so good. So I hope you didn't mind me taking you on that little trip all the way to the book of Ruth. Amen. I, I enjoyed it. Amen. Genesis chapter 39. By the way, you can look at that chart. It is blurry. Uh, it looks like uh, you're not going to be reading, be able to, you probably won't be able to read the Hebrew uh, because it's blurry. If it wasn't blurry, I'm sure you could. If you would like me to read it to you afterwards, I will, but I will read it very blurry too, so it will come out really garbled. <laughs> All right, so we go back to Genesis chapter 39, and I don't know how, we've got about 10 minutes left, and we'll just go until the time runs out, but we know we are with this man, Joseph. His brothers are out doing terrible, terrible things. Judah's back home doing terrible, terrible things. And this man Joseph is all alone. And he's brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, uh, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph. And he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Once again, we see capital letters, Lord. Yehovah, yud Hey, vav Hey in the Hebrew. It means Joseph right away began to tell people about his God. Otherwise, Potiphar couldn't know that the Lord was with him and not 300, 400, one of 300 or 400 of the Egyptian gods. 
Joseph made it known, I am a worshiper of the one true God. And Joseph found grace in his sight and served him, and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in his house and in the field. And praise the Lord. Uh, so we see here Joseph and, and Daniel uh, rose to responsibility from their merit and character. We'll, we'll come to that when we come to Daniel. But as we mentioned before, there was no evil thing said about Joseph. And there are only two people uh, in the Bible that, of any significance who no evil was spoken of. Of course, other than Jesus Christ himself. And those are Daniel and Joseph. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin? Not against my master. Not against Potiphar. Not because Potiphar has been so good to me. How can I do this sin against God? It's just one of those things. We have this young man who did so right by his father. He did everything right. He did everything that his father told him to do. His brothers hated him. And look at his life now. We've got Joseph who is a slave in a strange land with strange people, with strange gods. And if you were to compare him right now to Judah... At this point in his life, man, Judah's blessed. He's got flocks. He's got, he's probably got plenty of money. He's not hurting. Everything seems good in the life of Judah. He's certainly not a slave in Egypt. And Joseph is a slave. And he's being tested by God. And God tests him now with Potiphar's wife to see if he would be obedient. She tempted Joseph and he refused her temptation because he could not sin against God. Joseph had a dream. God had given him future knowledge of what he was going to do through Joseph. And Joseph had faith in that. And he believed that it would come to pass. I may be a slave now. I may be down. But I remember the dream that God is going to put me as the head of my brothers and as the head of my father and my mother. And they will bow down. No one bows down to a slave. But one day, then I know I will not be 
a slave. And it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment saying lie with me and he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out and it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them see he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us he came in unto me to lie with me and I cried with a loud voice and it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out and she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words. Now listen to this. Listen to this woman. And I guarantee you this was not the first time she did this. Listen to how she speaks to her husband. The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. You did it. It's your fault. And it came to pass as I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass when his mother heard the words of his wife which he spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. Now I cannot help but believe that if Potiphar really believed that Joseph had done what she said he did, he'd be dead. There would literally not. He could have killed him because he served him coffee and it was a little lukewarm. Nothing he could have done. No one would have done anything to him. But instead, he sends him to prison where the king's prisoners are kept. And I, I just can't help but think of what Joseph was feeling at this time. We're reading about him and we know the end of his story. But all he's thinking is, but I did everything right, Lord. I did everything my father told me, Lord. I did everything that Potiphar told me, Lord. And now I'm in prison. And you know, every day, because we see it later on, the king throws... The baker and the wine taster, the wine bearer, the cup bearer into prison. And they're waiting for his verdict. Well, you're in prison. I'm going to think about whether you're going to come out of prison alive or not. That was hanging over Joseph's head. I could be, I, 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 the guard could, guard could show up anytime and say, the decision came down against you, Joseph. We're going to take you out and we're going to kill you. That could have happened at any time. The only thing that Joseph could trust in was God. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, we're going to go through the Bible and you're going to find out that every great man went through a time just like this. A time of testing, a time of forming, a time when the only thing he could do was trust the Lord. Amen. And if you're going to be great in God, you want to do great things for God, God is going to take you, like Joseph, down a path you never thought you'd go. 
like Moses, who was the prince of Egypt, who, who was the perfect man in the political position to rescue the children of Israel. But instead, he was on the run from Egypt, worried for his life, a shepherd in the backside of the desert for 40 years because God wanted him to trust only God. I don't want you to trust in your position. I don't want you to trust in your power, your influence, or your education. You're going to trust in me. And I'm going to take you, Moses, and all you've got is a shepherd's staff. And we're going to bring Egypt to its knees. That's the kind of God we serve. Hallelujah. Amen. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word, Lord. We ask you to put your word into the hearts of your people, Lord, and to be here, your presence in this place as we go into prayer, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And I ask you to stay for prayer, if you will. It is, what did we call it, brother? It is Manna Monday, two hours of power. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I love your